Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Robert McFarlane, whose latest book is called Ghostways. It's a collaboration with the artist Stanley Donwood and a writer named Dan Richards. Actually, that's the second part of the book, Holloways. And I assume the first part is all yours? That's right, Ness. Robert McFarlane is the author of nine earlier books, among them The Old Ways, Landmarks, The Lost Words. In June of 2019, I interviewed you about Underland. There's also Mountains of the Mind. And before we went on the air, there was another small book that you'd written? Oh, The Gifts of Reading, yeah, a tiny, tiny book for charity about all that reading gives us and that, that, that we give on when we give books. Your basic thing is nature, I would guess, and that means you're, you've been stuck not being able to do much traveling for the past 10 months, and we'll go into that in a little bit, but let's talk first about the origins of Goatway. <laughs> we'll that, is a great re- that is a great retitling, Goatways. That is the book that I, I must now go and write, Richard. You have, you've inspired me. Goatways is great. And that's all going to go on the cutting room floor. I'm sorry. No, it's Um, fantastic. That's so funny. Anyway, carry on. Ghostways is a very strange book. Uh, I try to classify it in some ways, particularly the first part about Orford Ness, because there's a strange dialogue in there. It's not quite poetry, not quite prose. Talk a little about what it is and then how it originated. Yeah, I'll I'll try. Thank you. Yes, Ness. So there's two books in there, uh, Ness and Holloway. They're both about uncanny landscapes, I guess. That word Freud gives us, uh, unheimlich in the German, unhomely, uncanny. And uh, in an odd way, every landscape's become uncanny this year. I mean, I wrote these books uh, years ago now, but they happen to have come out in the later stages of a pandemic in which every landscape has become strange to us, has become unsettled and unquiet. So they have their resonances. Um, Ness is a polyphonic prose poem, medieval mystery play. Does that help? It doesn't really, but it's um, it's uh, it's the closest thing to fiction I've ever written, and it's set on this former nuclear weapons testing site, Orford Ness, off the English coast, not far from where I live. Where it, where I've been many times, uh, and it imagines nature really coming back to to take over and prevent the uh, this ritual of destruction that's being carried out in the the Green Chapel on this former test site, a, a shingle spit. The Green Chapel is actually a chapel. Uh, it's a chapel to to nuclear physics. Yeah. So on the, the this what was tested in this in these laboratories out on this this bleak coastal landscape were were not actual uh, physics packages, not actual atomic detonations, obviously, because it was very close to to London. But they stress tested 
vibration tested, pressure tested the um, the detonators of British nuclear weapons and the casings. So they they basically wanted to make sure that when nuclear weapons were uh, were delivered, they did their job of getting to the target before detonating. And one of the laboratories looks as as close to a chapel as you can imagine. It's just that God wasn't being worshipped there. There are crosses on the on the walls. These were used to manoeuvre the the gantries that held the bombs around, so they could be they could be placed in the space differently and tested differently. And you walk into it and you realise it is a a space of of, of dark worship, really. Is it kind of a, a bunker then? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, this spit is huge. It's nearly 10 miles long. It's up to a mile across. And it's shingle. It's like a desert. It's like a, an offshore desert. Uh, it's a very, very odd place. It was controlled by the by the British military for the best part of 70 years. And they tested everything there from sort of standard ballistics in the in the First World War, shooting up German planes to see how, how well their bullets went through the, you know, the fuselage of, a, uh, a, of an enemy fighter all the way through to the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment when the Americans were busy you know, collaborating with us uh, as we developed our nuclear weapons there. Does it kind of disappear at high tide? It doesn't, but the tide is eating it. So this is the other thing. It's a climate change front line. Uh, most of East, East, Southeast England is a soft coast. It's, we don't have, there's not much surface rock there. It's not like the, the, the granite of, um, of Scotland. And so it's being eaten. It's mud, it's shingle, big, big mouthfuls are taken out of it by surging tides, by rising sea levels. So the, the lighthouse, which has stood on Orford Ness since the 18th century is, is, is being decommissioned because it's about to fall into the sea. So there are all these conflicts going on on this, this very haunted site, which is now abandoned um, and has effectively become rewilded, which is why the, the chapel has become green, because ferns and algae and moss have returned to it. Is the chapel what they call on Wikipedia the pagodas? Yes, yeah, that's right, the pagodas, because they, they have this oddly, or they're thought to have had this oddly Chinese architecture. I mean, they don't really, but there's a huge roof held up on these uh, ferro-concrete struts, uh, and that was designed so that so that if, if one of the bombs did blow, it would blow out the struts, and this immense concrete roof would slam down like a lid on the test chambers, on the laboratories, and sort of seal in the blast. And is that also the radar station or is the radar station somewhere else? Uh, that's somewhere different. I mean, uh, all the way up and down that coast, because it, it faces Europe, it faces Germany. Um, it, it, it's always been a, a, a sort of an invasion point. So we, we had radar there. My grandfather, in fact, was very involved in developing radar in the Second World War. He got, got knighted for that work. And uh, so they developed radar there. They've It, it was it was armoured in the, in the Roman period. They have, they've got forts from from the second century um uh there so it's it's just always been a paranoid coastline a space of 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 haunting and unsettlement also i read that there were ufo sightings there so that kind of brings it full circle (laughs) yeah what's your what's your is yours area 51 is that your kind of great um, yeah yeah well our equivalent of area 51 is rendlesham forest which is just hard by Orford Ness. Um, so that's that's where the most famous and sort of uh, attested to sightings happened, in fact, by military personnel in the in the 20th century. So yeah, we got everything going on there. Did you go back there during the pandemic by yourself to check it out? 
No, that is such an interesting question. I, I haven't been able to get there. I mean, I normally go twice a year. I take my students out there. I introduce them to a nuclear bomb. We, there, is, there is the one nuclear bomb that you can meet, W177A. It looks a bit like your fridge, um, but it could it could destroy a city. And you have to get a boat over. Um, there's a lot of unexploded ordnance still on the site from the ballistics testing. So they have to stick to, to various sort of safety protocols. Couldn't get there, but I am doing everything I can to get them out there this February. In fact, I went to Orphan Nest the day before the pandemic became the only thing everyone spoke about last year. So it was the it was the last landscape I was in before the viral storm really, really blew across Britain. And I'll always remember being there that last day of innocence. My memory of those last days is having come in from uh, Hawaii on a plane in late February, uh, just under the wire. And then it became weird because we didn't know what was happening or how big it was or where it spread. Well, we're speaking, as you probably know, on what we're, what's being called V-Day here, um, the, the, the day the first vaccine has gone into an arm, in a, non, a non-trial arm in, in Britain. And I, I don't know if you heard that beautifully the second ever patient in the world to receive a non-trial vaccine, uh, officially approved vaccine, was William Shakespeare. That was the name of our of our second second recipient here. You couldn't make it up. It's beautiful. Getting back to your book, you hit the nail on the head when you said it feels like we've all the world has become a strange ghost way. More here in the United States with the election and the aftermath of the election, where half the country seems to be going into some very dark fictional places. Yeah. In Britain, it seems like after Johnson got COVID-19, reality kind of set in. Is that correct? (laughs) It's a hollow laugh from here. I think statistically, we have been a very prudent and on the whole, very rule obedient country. That is probably true. And there was something foundational about Johnson's illness, the severity of it, the swiftness of it. I remember waking my son up or just before he went to sleep that night, he just said, "Is you know, will our prime minister be dead by the time I wake up? And whatever your party politics, there was something very, it sat you back in your seat, that, that possibility that we would just have our political system uh, decapitated by this illness really early on. As opposed to what happened here, where the president simply decapitated everything no matter what. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely extraordinary act of, um, of, of, of democratic vandalism and worse. Let's get back to your book for the moment, because then we're going to go more into a little bit about how Britain dealt with the um, the past year and how you specifically did. But that first book, about Orford Ness. Where was that published? So both of these books, we um, Stanley Donwood, uh, who's the artist who illustrated both these books, extraordinary artist, and actually many of your listeners will know him and know his art, though they may not know his name, because he is the, the Radiohead artist. So he's the so-called sixth member of Radiohead. And so every time that band has released an album, every time they've gone on tour, um, that's all Stanley's art apart from Pablo Honey, one of the early albums. And so he did the cover of, you know, the Benz and 
Kid A and OK Computer, all this stuff. Uh, and he's an abs- I mean, he's a global cult, really. There are there are many, many people who have tattoos of Stanley's art <laughs> all over their body. So, you know, working with Stanley is a, is a wonderful and strange thing. And he was determined that we would publish both of these books, uh, sort of hand printed in a very limited edition with a strange strange number of copies and and the first book Holloway we made actually he determined to make it from first principles so he he bought a uh, you know a couple of pounds of lead he melted the lead he then with the with, with his Richard Lawrence his printer friend they cast type they literally made type and they then set type in an old um, printing machine and they hand printed this this book they made it from a lump of lead and that was that was kind of wild way to to make this strange book. And those those first editions, two hundred and seventy seven of them hand printed, are collector's editions. Is that the Holloway's book? That's Holloway, yeah. And then we did something similar with with, with Ness, again hand printed in a very limited edition. What happened to bring the two books together into Ghostways? In America, Norton, my American publishers, decided they 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 would really like to publish these books. They were going to publish them separately, and then they suddenly sort of looked at them because I'd I'd written them sort of five six years apart, uh, so they they weren't a pair in my mind, although I'd worked with Stanley on them. Uh, and then they just said, "Look, this is one book, really. These are two journeys. Why why don't we make a, a diptych out of this?" And and I thought, "Yeah, okay, that seems right." I wasn't to know quite quite how how uncanny twenty twenty would turn out to be. Did you do any revision on either of them? Uh, a very little. I mean, they, they're both written really to be spoken. I mean, I, I write so much more and more for voice these days. I write for I write for song. I write write for for opera. Collaborate a lot with musicians. Write these these spells for children that are designed to be spoken aloud. And and so Holloway is they're they're sort of they're, they're almost like radio plays going back to Undermilk Wood or even as I say the medieval mystery plays that were performed up and down Britain in the 13th, 14th centuries, the York cycle. They, they have their origins in old oral forms, I think that's, that's fair to say. So, I, so yes, I, did, I spoke them out and I changed them a little as they, as they found this form. Can you read a brief section? Yeah. Why don't I read the first page of, or some of the first page of Ness? Listen. Listen now. Listen to Ness. Ness speaks. Ness speaks gull, speaks wave, speaks bracken and lapwings, speaks bullet, ruin, gale, deception. Ness speaks pagoda, transmission, reception. Ness speaks pure mercury, utmost secret, swift current, rapid fire. Listen again. Listen back. Listen to the pasts of Ness. Listen inland to the long-gone wood which rings with the cries of wildcat and brock, hiorta and hind, doa and bokka. Hare and fox, wild fowler with his flocker, partridge, pheasant, hen and pheasant, cocker with green and wild stub and stocker. Listen to the wrench of the door in the centrifuge dome. Listen to the rise of the still encroaching ocean. Listen to the silence of the merman who would not talk e'en when tortured and hung up by his feet. Listen to the rumoured motion of the rumoured bodies on the rumoured shore. Shut up and listen, though, will you? Really listen. What the fuck is that coming from the Green Chapel? Holloway, the second part of the book, that's more prose. It's a little bit closer to your nature writing. Mm. What actual writing did Dan Richards do in that section? So Dan wrote the second, really the second half of that. And uh, these are very collaboratively made books. I guess, um, you know, there are three of us. There's an artist, there's two writers in Holloway. 
and it's partly because these landscapes themselves are so complicated. They have many voices, they have many layers, they have many echoes and histories all folded into one another. So it seemed good to make work with others to register some part of that. There are the images of Stanley Donwood, and I thought those images, they they reminded me a little of Middle Earth. And in fact, <laughs> when I was reading... Does this make sense? Oh, yeah. No, you're not the first to say it. I mean, I should probably explain these Holloways are, are these, these paths that have been used for centuries uh, by, by carts, by rain, water, by human feet. Um, and where the ground is soft, where the, the bedrock is soft as it is in Dorset, they, they sink down into the land over time, sometimes 20 feet deep. You get them in, um, in Galicia, in, in Spain. You get them, I think, in, in Normandy and in parts of, parts of America as well, really, where, where you get paths of very long usage on soft bedrock. They sink. The image, it's almost like looking at a cave, and I thought, ah, this is, this is an artist at work. <laughs> but then if you go to Google and you type Holloway of South Dorset, mm. the first thing that comes up is a Guardian article with photos about the original 2013 book. And you will see photos of those images, and it's very, very eerie looking. Also, you'll see more about the type as well. You guys just took your bikes, first time with the late Roger Deacon and later with the these two collaborators. You just took a bike and went over there? Yeah, yeah, Roger. It's a wonderful Roger Deacon, Waterlog, Wildwood, these books that are really starting to find American readers now. Huge figure in this country. A dear friend of mine died in 2006, far too early, of, uh, of, of brain cancer. And not long before he died, we went down to the Holloways of Dorset to explore them because we'd heard so much about them and... Uh, they feature in a in a cult novel in this country, Rogue Mail, by Geoffrey Household from 1939, that that it sort of every schoolboy read in the 1970s and 1980s, and um, and they also have this fascinating Catholic past. So they were that valley, that part of South Dorset borders the English Channel, and during the recusancy, Catholics still pursued their faith in that landscape. Um, priests held mass. Um, uh, Catholic devotees were trapped, were hunted in that landscape, and eventually several of them were were brutally executed for their faith. So there's there's a re- there's a really interesting, haunting history of of refuge and flight in that landscape. How far is that from Orford Ness? As the crow drives, as it were, it's about, it's about six. You'd probably get there in six hours in a in a car. So no distance in American terms, but but half the country in English terms. So it's over on the other side of London. Oh yeah, of London. Yeah, exactly. Orford Ness is uh, is east eastern Anglia, the big the big bulge that comes out of the east of England, and, and Dorset is down on the south coast, the English Channel. So you guys put your bicycles on the back of your car and drove over there. Yeah, yeah, and then we um, Roger Roger and I in that first visit spent um, spent a few days sort of camping out, um, following tracing the the deepest of the Holloways, um, yeah, swimming in the sea, walking, just just getting a sense of of this this, this place with all its folds. Is it protected area? One of the interesting things about Holloways is that they protect themselves. I guess we come back to this idea of refuge again. They're they're a refuge for, for, for wildlife, for plants, because they're too deep. You know, farmers can't farm them. You can't fill them in. You can't you can't fill in a kind of mile long, twenty foot deep 
track. It would take millions of tons of soil. So they just get left and they, they overgrow and they, they have wonderful sort of plant ecologies of muscatel and ivy and all these shade loving species. And you enter them, the light changes, it becomes green, it becomes shady. It is another green chapel, really. And that's that's one reason why that landscape joins oddly with the much darker nuclear histories of Orford Ness. Well, when I was in uh, England in 2017, uh, my friend and I, we didn't do it, but we were talking about taking a bike ride through the Cotswolds. Oh, right. Could you just like rent mountain bikes and just take rides through uh, the Holloway? Yeah, people. some people do that. Some of them are, I mean, there are lots of these Holloways. So then there, there happen to be two quite sort of famous, very deep ones, Hell Lane and Ven, Ven Lane, um, which, uh, I mean, we say in the in the book, a map of the Holloway's finding is not contained within them, but lots of people find their ways into the Holloway. And that is, is, there's a lovely adventure to it. You know, some of them get lost and end up in different Holloways and send us photos of them. You know, it's always popping up on, on Twitter or Instagram. People have gone looking and found their way to somewhere completely unexpected. So that's why the Middle Earth comparison, I think, is quite a good one, because the Holloway is a sort of portal. Um, but it takes people to unexpected places. But yeah, you could uh, you could get on your bike, head down there. <laughs> well, next time I get to Britain, I'm going to look you up anyway. <laughs> uh, you do that. You come and see me. I'll take you. I'd love taking people to Orford Ness and the Holloways, but Orford Ness uh, it just unsettles people in really interesting ways. Rob McFarlane, uh, let's talk a little more about. Britain and the pandemic. You mentioned before we started that your father and your brother are both respiratory physicians. Yeah. When did they become aware of it and how did they deal with it? And also, have you personally had known people who have gotten COVID or even died from it? So my dad, yeah, is a retired uh, respiratory physician. He a professor of chest medicine. He was an absolute uh, sort of key figure in some of the outbreaks, respiratory outbreaks that we had here in Britain. So Legionnaires' disease is still very famous, I think, in the in the states as well. Um, he worked a great deal on Legionnaires' disease, so he was used to sort of community acquired, airborne, transmitted uh, respiratory diseases, and he worked on tuberculosis. So he has a sort of reasons to isolate. So he is actually just locked down really in the in the lake district where he lives and he's been able to to stay distant from people but he volunteered to man the phones to in the early days to help um you know instruct people at the nightingale hospitals we have my brother um who is a very active respiratory physician so he ran a covid ward here he was right on the front line from the first days he's still on it and he's he got covid he he got it seemed inevitable you know he's working day in day out in ppe with 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 really ill people and he got it um about five weeks ago the complication interesting complication here is that he was part of the vaccine trial so we still don't know whether he was vaccinated or whether he had placebo but we do know that he turned up with an asymptomatic positive and he had felt a little bit funny but he's fine and you know we're hugely relieved at that and somewhere in that data set that has allowed uh, our vaccine to move towards um, approval is is my brother's case, the Oxford AstraZeneca one. Have you been vaccinated yet? No, 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 no. We've so no, no. Sadly, the um, the, the family rights don't extend to me. No, he was a good call. They were asking for volunteers from the NHS early in the pandemic, and he he and he and his wife, who's a GP, put their put their hands up to to help with the study. Of course, here in America, the healthcare system is completely shot. But over there, the NHS, how have they been dealing with this? Are people satisfied? 
Yeah, I mean, the NHS, as as you know, is a sort of you know beating heart of the welfare state here, an absolutely adored institution. Um, people defend it uh, from many, many sort of attacks from the right, attempts to privatise it. But healthcare is is free at the point of need in this country for 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 everybody who is here, and that has been huge, as you can imagine, in in the pandemic. And NHS workers have been understood uh, along with teachers and, and all the others as as key workers you know they've really really been recognized as key key workers so one of the wonderful outcomes is this absolute entrenchment of the national will to protect the nhs from assaults from the right at your end um i don't remember because we were of course very self-involved here i don't remember how did britain first respond and were you getting separate information from your dad and your brother that made you react a little differently? We responded slowly, like like everybody else. You know, we we had that two weeks on Italy. We saw what was happening in Italy, just as just as everyone had had the glimpse into China, but that was complicated. We we really clearly had the glimpse into Italy, and we we didn't take that two weeks. And we sh- yeah we sh- we we lost a fortnight. Should have locked down two weeks earlier. We'd still be in a second wave now, but many lives would have been saved, I think, in that terrible, terrible first wave. So, uh, you know, my brother was just bundled up in the in the front line of it. But actually, the, the swell was quite unevenly distributed across Britain, as of course it has been in, in America. So it didn't reach the northeast where he lives until, uh, you know, until after it had broken catastrophically over London. But the NHS never, you know, it buckled, but it never broke. And how about down in Cambridge, where you are? Very low instance, really peculiar. We're, we're a sort of sleeper suburb to London, a small town, um, university town, lots of uh, movement between London and other city centres, incredibly low rates. It's, it's a puzzle. It's a great puzzle. Everybody wear masks? Uh, well, you have to. I mean, it's not generally done outdoors uh, unless you're in, you know, confined spaces or public spaces or so forth. So I teach at Cambridge University, as, as you know, and we, the university was really smart about it. It, it, it set up over the summer a, um, uh, an asymptomatic testing program for every single student, the only university in, in this country to do so. And so we, this term, have been able to teach a great deal in person uh, because we've, we've had this asymptomatic testing program that just locks down bubbles of, of students. And I will never forget this autumn's teaching because I've done most of it outside, so I can avoid, we can avoid masks. So I just walk. I measure my teaching not in hours any longer, but in kilometers. Um, I did. I had a good eighteen-kilometer teaching day um, two two Fridays ago, and I set up a little outdoor teaching space in one of the the, the, the grounds of the college where where I work. It's been unforgettable. Are the restaurants open? Uh, they are now. They weren't, but they've just reopened. We had a we had a, another kind of four-week sharp lockdown. I think you know. I think we've been locked down probably more than most of America. Although I know in toto but we have kept schools open i know i just worry so much about american children and all this time away from their schools what's happening about that in america at the moment one of the problems is that because of the politicalization of masks right because it's all become political about half the country refuses to wear masks and that means that a lot of students aren't going back. And when they are going back, people are catching COVID. And the hospitals right now 
uh, on December 8th, this will air later, on December 8th at least, and I would assume when this airs at the beginning of 2021, it won't have changed. I guess there's new lockdowns that there has to be until the vaccine comes around. And of course, the Trump administration screwed up on the vaccine itself too. Unbelievable. This, you know, that toxic legacy of, of the politicization of masks. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it here, but mostly people just want a kind of best fit solution, as it were. And so the schools have been back since September, and it's just made such a difference to children here. That goes back to Boris Johnson, on some level, seeing the light. I think so. Yeah. I mean, he came out an ill man. Uh, it took him a long time to recover. And he, he did come out, I think, a, a, you know, a frightened man. He, he had seen this thing, this, this monstrous, almost at its most ferocious. And uh, yeah, that, that he has been oddly cautious in many ways. Yeah. And so the Tories are not doing what the Republicans are doing. No, I mean, you know, Johnson is a he is a libertarian Tory, as it were, even more than most Tories. So, as he um, bombastically, flourishingly proclaims, it, it goes against his ethos for the state to tell individuals what to do. But he he has understood that that has to happen. So he's he's he's. Some people would have liked him to have picked a far more, even more cautious course. But he's steered a surprisingly prudent. When do you expect the entire country to be uh, vaccinated? Do they have any uh, time frame on that? Twenty million by the start of the spring to to, to be done, or by the, by the by the early spring to be done, and they think that's probably when the. So we, we're a country of sixty seven million um, across all four nations of the United Kingdom, something like that. So there's still, you know, massive population to go, but they think that's when it will really start to tell in terms of fatalities, hospitalizations, and, um, uh, and and to a lesser extent, community transmission. And how is Brexit fitting into any of this? <laughs> As a political person, I think most about climate change. And I, th- I think about the longer term environmental uh, problems that Britain and, and the world face. And uh, the, the book that we spoke about a year and a half ago, Underland, uh, the, the question at its core was, are we being good ancestors? which is, in fact, the question asked by an immunologist of all people, the, the Jonas Salk, your great um, immunologist who pioneered the polio vaccine. And, um, and, and the answer, of course, is no at the moment. But to be good ancestors, we need to think in, in long term. And one of the disastrous consequences of, of COVID has been necessarily to pull the focus of governments to a, a sort of two-week, four-week, six-week timescale because they're just fighting fires the whole time. But of course, the fires are still burning, the other fires, the big fires, the climate fires. Uh, and so I, th- I think we've lost terrible time. Um, it, it, the pandemic is going to be seen as, as, as having a climate crisis legacy that, that, it, that is much longer than the pandemic itself. Anyway, the other thing that's been distracting our politicians is, is Brexit. And we, um, we're speaking in, in early December now, right on the wire of the negotiations. And it's very unclear whether the, 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 the Tories, our negotiators, our civil servants will be able to bring a deal home. Uh, and it will be a you know double, double disaster economically if they can't. A couple of things about the climate change and COVID. One of them is that at least in the United States, because fewer cars were on the road, the air got cleaner. We could see it in the Bay Area. Yeah, but yeah, but then what happened? <laughs> the, the, the wildfires burned, and your sky turned orange. The great hesitation, the great stop, temporary stop that COVID brought, 
but actually the figures when they were finally crunched in terms of carbon emissions were were terrifying so we stopped the entire global economy all movement for six weeks and we saw a reduction in global carbon emissions of around 17 percent on 2019 figures that takes us back to what we were emitting in 2007 <laughs> so it shows you what steep rise that we're on but also um how uh how, how little actually was stopped by transport suspension and you realize how much is baked into the systems that we have in ways that we even a shock of this magnitude the stilling of the whole world can't reduce over here i don't know if you saw the pictures there was a wednesday when the entire day was dark like night tell me about that tell me how it was to live in that it was very apocalyptic feeling you walk outside and it was like dusk like the sun had set you looked up and i took photos and there was the sun bright red not even bright just red red against a grayish black background it really felt like we'd entered a science fiction film. We are back with the idea of unquiet landscapes, uncanny landscapes. It's not just COVID that's that's turning places strange. It's it, it's climate and the Anthropocene. You know, you stepped out, as you say, out of your front door into a into what felt like a film set. Um, the ra- the rising temperatures are melting glaciers in the in the Dolomites and the bodies of early 20th century white war combatants are, are, are emerging, sort of eerily preserved from this ice. The same is happening up in, in Kashmir in that, that long forgotten high altitude brutal war, um, war front between India and Pakistan. In 2007, I interviewed uh, Tim Flannery and he made mention that there are huge pools of methane under the ice in Siberia. And when that they come to the surface, things will accelerate. Are they coming to the surface now? Yes. So permafrost holds methane often as a, and deeper down ice holds it as, as what's called a clathrate. Uh, and it is being released uh, in increasing quantities. It doesn't seem to be belching in the sorts of quantities yet that are going to produce a tipping point. But other things are emerging from the permafrost. Wolf cubs from 12,000 years ago, perfectly preserved, found in the Yukon by gold miners. Or the corpses of reindeer that died of anthrax in Siberia a century ago and were buried in sort of pestilence grounds in the permafrost, assuming that they would they would never surface again. But that they, they've resurfaced and there was in... It was 2016. There was a there was an anthrax outbreak, a really really grim one, um, because of what was buried coming to the surface again. So we're releasing things. So we could have another pandemic. People look really hard at this. You know, there are there are pathogens that are in basically in cold storage in the permafrost, uh, and we 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 don't know much about them. Um, this this seems to be kind of low down the, the global risk register, but it is being looked at. Um, but even something like anthrax, you know, you don't want that back in circulation. What does your father say about the origin of COVID? He doesn't have a, a strong opinion. My, my, I mean, my wife, my partner, uh, Julia Lovell, is a, she's a sinologist. So she, she speaks fluent Mandarin, classical Chinese, she translates out of the Chinese. She studies the Chinese state. So she has strong feelings about this. And what has she said? 
Well, she assumes it originates in Wuhan. I mean, her her interest is in what the you know what Agamben calls the state of exception. That is that is when a state like China or any state, but particularly an authoritarian state like China, as it were, inherits a situation like this. The CCP sees in this a vast opportunity as well as a crisis, and it's become a huge opportunity for them, probably more than a crisis because of the way they handled it. So two examples of that. One is that they've they've initiated an intensification of subject tracking, of individual citizen tracking, data tracking now, that is, which was already huge in, in, China, in mainland China, but is now just intrusive and extensive in ways that were unprecedented. And of course, it's also meant that they can carry on with the repression of, of, of the Uyghur population in Xinjiang, which is, you know, for my money, and, and, and uh, I won't speak for my partner, but you know, is, is probably the great large-scale ongoing human rights atrocity of, of these years. And it's been great cover for that. And for you, Robert McFarlane, how is it spending so much time at home? I love it. I'm a homebody. I'm, like, I'm the travel writer who never goes past the corner shop. Whenever anyone says, what do you do? They don't know me. I always say I'm a teacher because that is what I do for most of most of my you know, vocational time, as it were, is I teach young people and, and, and I think with them and they, they keep my brain fresh and they make me Spotify playlists and they're, they're just awesome. Uh, I love I love teaching, and then I'm a you know, and I'm also a parent of three three young children. So I don't actually get it, get out very much, even when there's not a pandemic raging. So, <laughs> so you know, hi- hibernating has been kind of okay, really. Uh, I mean, we've been lucky not to not to have a, a d- death at the door. Have you been anywhere? Have you gotten in the car and gone anywhere? I got to the mountains. You know, we had this sort of quiet summer in in, in Britain, and I got to my beloved mountains in in the far northwest of Scotland. You know, all within regulations, and and started walking over uh, half billion year old sandstones in the northwest of Scotland, and that that gave me my my deep time fix. Took a deep breath, but I, I'm director of undergraduate studies here in Cambridge, so I've I've had hundreds and hundreds of students to 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 see to the well being of, and that yeah, it's been a good thing to have to keep me busy. Robert Farlane, now that Ghostways is out, are you working on another book? I was working on a big book, Heartwood. I was just beginning to think about it, about trees and people and protests around the world, Australia, Newfoundland. But but the pandemic has stopped that and made me think again about it. Think whether the world needs that from me. Jackie Morris, we wrote this book, The Lost Spells, poems and art about nearby nature. And that, that's taken flight this autumn uh, across North America as well. So there's been a lot of time spent working with schools, working with educators uh, in this country and North America and parents uh, on that. So that's been, that's been a lovely thing to do. Getting past COVID, do you see any permanent changes? And I'm not talking about restaurants and things no, like that. No. Uh, do you see permanent changes in how people view things? Or do you think we'll just within a year drift back to whatever fatal trip we were on? Uh Power loves a pandemic. I mean, that's the, that's the first thing to say, and I've touched on that with China. Uh, I'm, I'm very you know, incredibly grateful, uh, as, as of course you are, that Biden's coming to power now and, and Trump won't get a second term to exploit what's, what's happening in your country. Uh, two things. One, I think that certainly in Britain, there has been this recognition of what nature does for, for us and to us at times of need. Um, just this huge outpouring of of kind of love and 
need for nature, particularly during the first lockdown, during what was an incredibly warm and, and birdsong-filled spring here. So I hope that nearby nature will, will, will gain a boost. People will care more about getting to green places close to their homes. And the second thing is cities. I, I really think cities, global cities, are, are starting to rethink ways in which they can reshape themselves. You know, we've seen uh, Madrid, Barcelona, lots of parts of London, cycleways extended, tra- traffic control measures introduced. We're not in America, I take it, but but across Europe, at least, cities are really, really starting to realize air pollution kills more people than COVID every year. Um, green cities, walking cities are good cities. And I hope that change will be a, a positive legacy of Corona. You've been listening to an interview with Robert McFarlane, whose latest book, which is a collaboration with Stanley Donwood and Dan Richards, is called Ghostways, Two Journeys in Unquiet Places. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.